We're currently in a, a sermon series that we've called Real Talk, where we take on some uh, provocative, some controversial topics to discuss during the summertime. And we've invited some guest speakers besides uh, Andrew and myself to be part of this series. So last week, we, we heard about emotional health in the church. And then next week, I tackled the topic of politics in our presidential election. Well, today, our speaker comes from the Pacific Northwest. It's Pastor Wayne Okamachi. He is the senior pastor, actually the lead pastor for Lighthouse Christian Church, which he answered a call about in year 2000, about 16 years ago, to plant a church up there. But before that, for those of you who don't know, for 17 years, he was our senior pastor. And any of you who are part of AACF, there's a small little fact that back in 1983, he came up from Southern California and was instrumental in starting that campus fellowship here at Berkeley. So this is a man who has many accomplishments. On a personal note, he's someone who's meant a lot to me. He's someone who picked me out from the crowd and mentored me, discipled me, and essentially made the person and the man that I am today. So there are many things that I could, could attribute to him, but the most important thing that I can say is that I am blessed that he calls me his friend. So without further ado, why don't we give a warm welcome to Pastor Wayne Okamachi. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, thank you, Kelvin. He is a good friend and a longtime friend. The topic today is, all religions are basically true, right? Question mark, okay? So I think it's very common today. Let me, let me offer a word of prayer first. Lord, thank you so much that we could be here. This is just a, a great time on Sunday mornings and wonderful congregation and fellowship. Thanks for all those who are here, Lord. And we believe that there's some kind of divine appointment going on that we are here because uh, you've called us here and we pray that you would meet with each of us here. I suppose the most important thing that happens today is not the music or the preaching or not even the food, but it would be that we all uh, see you and have some kind of encounter with you. So I pray that you would open our hearts and minds uh, to what you have for us and uh, just meet us where we are, Lord, but also show us where you want us to go. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. So are all religions, all religions are basically true, right? Well, it's very common, I think, for people to say things today like, uh, you know, there are many pathways to God, right? And uh, different roads and, as long, and some roads go directly and some meander around the mountain. But, you know, if you think of God as the top of the mountaintop and there are many pathways to God and all roads will get you there as long as you're sincere. You ever heard anything, anything like that? Maybe some of us have thought things like that, said things like that. And I think it's very appealing. I mean, like, that'd be cool. Like, if there's many ways to God. And, and I think a lot of people want to believe that today. It's kind of a popular belief. As long as you're sincere, somehow you'll get there. Uh, I want to ask two questions about that. First question is, how do you know? Which is a good question, isn't it? Is, is this just wild speculation? Is it just wishful thinking? Uh, how do you know? And the second question I would ask is, what if you're wrong? What if you want to believe that, and you do believe that, but if you're wrong, the stakes are very high. You know, if there are many ways to God, okay, but if there aren't, 
it would be better to know which ones really work, and if there's only one way, then uh, we will be best if we can find out uh, what that one way is. Are all religions basically true? Uh, the writer Josh McDowell, he said this, he said, even though many religions seem to be the same on the surface, the closer one gets to the central teachings, the more apparent the differences become. It is totally incorrect to say that all religions are the same. And I think that um, there, there's this thing going on today called uh, the new tolerance. Have you heard of that? And basically, the old tolerance, which was a good tolerance, was basically this, that we don't persecute people who disagree with us, right? Or we don't burn people at the stake because they believe in religions that we consider false, and, and uh, we don't bully people that, that don't share our, our belief system. That's a wonderful thing, and if that's what tolerance means, then tolerance is awesome. It's great, right? But today, tolerance has shifted in its meaning so that it not only means we tolerate different viewpoints and we accept different people who, who differ from us. Uh, I think in our culture, tolerance has come to mean not only do I accept other people who believe other things, but now we have to accept all beliefs as equally valid. You know what I mean? I think that's kind of like the new tolerance is, well, who am I to say? Who are you to say what's right or wrong or true or false? Uh, you know, isn't it totally subjective? Isn't it totally up to the individual? And so aren't all beliefs equally valid? And that's kind of the new tolerance, but, but that's got to be false. I mean, it, it, it feels like an appealing thing to believe, but uh, how can all beliefs be equally valid when they're contradictory? So I was reading a little bit in this book. It's called Don't All Religions Lead to God. In fact, if you want to study more about this topic, I, I, I uh, recommend this. It's called Don't All Religions Lead to God by Gary Poole. And it's really kind of a study guide. But uh, I want to read you something that he said. Sometimes as people attempt to accept widely diverse teachings, truth is sacrificed. And then he's going to quote from theologian R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul confronts this issue, and here's the quote. I once had a conversation with a Baha'i priest. He told me that all religions were equally valid. I began to interrogate him concerning the points of conflict that exist between Islam and Buddhism, between Confucianism and Judaism, and between Christianity and Taoism. The man responded by saying that he didn't know anything about Islam, Judaism, or the rest, but that he did know that they were all the same. <laughs> I wondered aloud how anyone could assert, could assert that all religions were the same when he had no knowledge of what those religions professed or denied. How can Buddhism be true when it denies the existence of a personal God, and at the same time Christianity be true when it affirms the existence of a personal God? Can there be a personal God and not be a personal God at the same time? Can Orthodox Judaism be right when it denies life after death? And can Christianity be equally right when it affirms life after death? Can classical Islam have a valid ethic that endorses the killing of infidels, while at the same time, the Christian ethic of loving your enemies is equally valid? I think those are good questions, right? That, that in our worldview today, <laughs> I think somehow we've gotten to such a state of relativism that Relativism has come to mean not only uh, that people have different beliefs, but that all beliefs have an equal validity and should have an equal voice. But really, it logically doesn't hold together, right? All religions cannot be true for, because they teach conflicting beliefs. For example, is there one God, many gods, or no gods? They can't all be true, right? 
Uh, if there is a God, is God personal or impersonal? Is God the creator of everything, or is God one with all that exists? The doctrine called pantheism. Pantheon means God is in everything. God is in me. God is you. The tree is God. You know, the rabbits are God. Uh, this podium is God. We can't not distinguish between the creator and the creation. They are one and the same, totally intermixed. Well, the, the Christian view, of course, is very different, that there is a creator God who created uh, all of creation, and he stands beyond it, above it, beyond it, and and he can definitely manifest himself in it, reveal himself in it, but he is not the same as creation, and so we don't worship creation. Okay, these statistics are always changing, but the latest statistics I saw are that today in our world there are 1.3 billion Muslims, 900 million Hindus, 360 million Buddhists, 14 million Jews, and 1.9 billion Christians. Now that means, uh, including all of those with no religious affiliation, there are about 5 billion people today who are not followers of Jesus Christ. So are we going to say that without Jesus Christ, those folks are all without salvation, that they are lost forever? It's a very uh, bold claim, isn't it? And we've got to make a dis distinction today between uh, toleration of other religions and validation of all religions, right? We can tolerate different religions, and, and that's, all, that's all good, but that doesn't mean that they're all valid or equally valid. A long time ago, there used to be this TV show called Dick Cavett. Dick Cavett is a talk show. And uh, many years ago, Dick Cavett was interviewing the Archbishop of, of Canterbury, the highest uh, church official in England. And he's interviewing uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury and Jane Fonda, famous actress, right? And, and they're having a dialogue. And at one point, the Archbishop said, Jesus is the Son of God, you know. And Jane Fonda said, well, maybe he is for you, but not for me. And then the Archbishop said, well, either he is or he isn't. <laughs> it's not determined by what people believe. In fact, if 50 million people believe uh, a foolish thing, it's still a foolish thing. And so truth is not based on just your sincerity or even popular opinion or the number of people who believe something. Uh, I think that as a Christian, I have to say this, and it's not on my authority, but I believe it's on the authority of the Word of God. All, all religions are not the same, and all religions are not true. I, I think that we could say this, that every, every religion, at least every legitimate religion, probably has a truth in it. I don't think I need to say as a Christian there's no truth in, in uh, Islam or Buddhism or whatever. But every religion has a mixture of truth and error. And so we can, uh, we can appreciate the truth in religions, but uh, not affirm them completely. So this is what I believe as a Christian. All religions are not true, but Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And I, I want us to talk about that a little bit uh, today. Uh, before we get into the scripture, I'll tell you about my first crisis of faith. So I grew up kind of going to Sunday school, but my family was not Christian. My parents wanted us kids to go to Sunday school because we would get some moral training. And uh, I used to ask my mom, why do we have to go to church when you and dad don't have to go? And my mom said two things to me. She said, uh, we think you'll be better people if you go to church and less likely to end up in jail. <laughs> That's worked so far. <laughs> uh, the other thing she said was we want you to meet some other Japanese kids because I grew up in an area in Southern California where almost everybody at school was white and, and we went to a Japanese church uh, in that area. Uh, so anyway, that, that's kind of how I grew up. And 
then I, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 15, and it was at a camp called Mount Hermon. I was just there this week. I, I get to go almost every year and revisit my spiritual birthplace on my spiritual birthday. It's a pretty cool thing to do. Uh, but the first couple of years as a Christian, and I was really growing, and you know the emptiness that I used to have, the sense of meaningless, meaninglessness in life, I think God started to take that away and, and just fill that empty part in my soul. And I got real involved in church, too, in Sunday school and youth group and all that stuff. And every once in a while, I would have doubts, like, wow, is this real? Is this true? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Is the Bible the, really the Word of God? And the way I resolved my doubts in those early years was I would tell myself, well, I don't know if it's true or not, but I do know this, that believing in it has done more good for my life than anything else. And, uh, and I was okay with that. And it reminded me, this. we used to sing this old hymn that goes, You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. And uh, I felt like God was there, and, and when I had doubts, I sort of resolved them by rationalizing those things to myself. But then I went to college. And my freshman year of college, I took this class called Introduction to Sociology. And, you know, I don't remember the, the names. I don't remember a lot of the classes I took in college. It's been so long ago, and... Uh, I don't remember the names of most of the professors, but I remember my introduction to philosophy professor, Dr. Bowman. And Dr. Bowman, it, was on, it wasn't on the course syllabus, but I think his whole agenda for that semester-long intro, introduction to philosophy class, I think his real agenda was to spend the whole semester ridiculing Christians and giving everybody the impression that you have to be some kind of an idiot to be a Christian. And so he would try to poke holes in every Christian belief and and all of that. And here I was a freshman, 18 years old, and all of a sudden I realized that the way I resolved my doubts up to that point were not, was no longer really adequate. That I had to know if this thing, this thing is true. And I actually got to the point where I thought, I, I, I'm pretty sure there's a God, or at least I, I believe in God. I wasn't really doubting the existence of a God, and it seemed to me that creation spoke loudly to the existence of a creator. So I wasn't doubting the existence of a God, but I, but I was at the point where I was doubting whether Jesus is really the Son of God and uh, whether the Bible is really the Word of God. And so I felt like I hit my, you know, this crisis of faith, really what was for me my first crisis of faith. And I didn't know what to do with it, you know. And, uh, but I did do this. I, I made up my mind. I said to myself, I've got to know if this Christian thing is true, because if it's not true, I'm going to reject it. Even though maybe it's going to plunge me back into the, the sense of emptiness that I had before Christ and the meaninglessness of life would, would just be pervasive, pervasive again. Uh, maybe I would have some of the depression that I had had. And, um, but, but I felt like if it's not true, I've got to know. And if it's not true, I decided I'm going to walk away from the Christian faith because no matter how much it helps me or how much it makes me feel happier or or more fulfilled, if it's not true, I don't want to spend the rest of my life believing a lie. You know what I mean? So that began a, a search for me, a, a period of searching, and I started reading some books about uh, the case for the Christian faith. I started talking with some people that were older and wiser than me. One thing I was very thankful for is that uh, when I would turn to these older Christians and confess my doubts to them, nobody condemned me. I'm so thankful that nobody said, Oh, don't question, don't doubt, just believe, because that would have really irritated me. <laughs> uh, so nobody said that, and they were just, uh, you know, the few people I talked with, they were still just understanding and empathetic, and, and some of them were able to help answer some of my questions and, and point me to some resources. Anyway, as a result, i got to make this long story short, but as a result of that, I became convinced 
of the veracity of the Christian faith and the authority of the Bible and the divinity of Jesus. I mean, I became convinced in my mind that that, that was what made the most sense of the evidence. That was what uh, the Christian worldview was the only worldview that really adequately explained existence as we know it and, and ourselves as, as we know ourselves as fallen creatures who also long for the divine and meaning and purpose and Anyway, I, I don't have time to get into all that, but I, I just became rock solid convinced that this is true, and and I'm going to you know recommit my life to Jesus, and I'm going to follow Him all of my days, and I've been trying to do that ever since, although sometimes very fallibly. But uh, it was it was so compelling to me that there was a point a few years later where I was really feeling very uh, tempted by the world. In fact, uh, when I was uh, I was in school, and I remember this, I, I sort of felt a little pocket of envy in my heart because my non-Christian friends could do anything they wanted. You know, they can go out and sin and, and you know, have immoral sex or, you know, get, do whatever they wanted with, with kind of like what seemed to me no restrictions and no boundaries. And I was feeling a little bit restricted. I was feeling a little bit deprived. And I remember feeling a little bit like, wow, it's kind of easier to not be a Christian because you don't have standards that you have to uphold and a, a Lord Jesus that you need to be faithful to and and the Bible is God's word to guide us. And there was a, a brief period where I, I felt like, yeah, I'm really feeling kind of like attracted to, to the non-Christian life, whatever that would mean for me. Uh, and at that point, there was like a big timeout. And I thought, but if I were to forsake my faith now because these other lifestyles seem more appealing to me, I would be turning my back on what I know is true. Because I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that the Bible is the Word of God. I know that Jesus is the Son of God. I can't tell you all the reasons right now, but um, I, I just came to realize that I've got to have a, you know, a faith that, that sings in my heart, but also I have to have a solid foundation for what I'm thinking and what I believe. And it's not just I know that He lives because He lives in my heart, but also my mind is convinced of the truth of God. So I, I want to encourage you, if maybe if you're going through some doubts, you know, there are answers. Just because you have doubts, don't think there's no answers. One of the things I learned during that period of doubt was that um, somebody said this. They said, you know, don't be afraid to ask God your questions. And, and there's plenty of, you know, books and literature and things to, to respond to the questions that doubters have. And uh, it, that in 2,000 years, people have been trying to bring Christianity down and destroy the faith and undermine it and ridicule it, and nobody has yet come up with the question that is going to bring the Christian faith uh, crumbling to the ground. So we don't have to be afraid of the question. So if you're going through doubts, I just want to encourage you to uh, keep asking the Lord to reveal himself to you, keep seeking, keep knocking, and he says that he will answer and he will reply. Uh, let's, look to, look, let's look at the Bible because, you know, I want, to, I want you to look at some things that Jesus said today in John chapter 14 where Jesus kind of talks about this issue of exclusiveness. Is it narrow-minded and judgmental and bigoted to say that, that Jesus is the only way? And uh, let's look at what Jesus says about this. This is John 14. We'll look at verses 1 through 14 today. John 14, 1 to 14. Uh, let me give you a little setting before I read this. Jesus is meeting with his disciples, his closest followers. This is like his posse. He's with his posse. He's been with them for three years. They're close friends. They, they've been in the trenches of ministry together. They have seen him uh, 
do incredible miracles of healing and casting out demons and feeding the multitudes and calming the stormy seas. And they've seen, they've seen that, they've been there, and they also have uh, heard his teaching. And now Jesus is telling them, I'm going to be leaving you soon. And Jesus knows what's going to happen, right? He will be arrested and betrayed and, and then he'll be crucified. And, and then on the third day, he will rise from the dead. He has told his disciples this repeatedly. They didn't really get it. Uh, they didn't expect him to, to rise from the dead. They didn't really expect him to die either. But Jesus is telling them it's going to happen. Now, because of that, the disciples are disturbed. Their hearts are troubled. What's going to happen? Everything's changing. Jesus says he's leaving. We don't know where he's going. Okay, verse chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. This is Jesus speaking. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And then Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You say, no one comes to God the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. Pretty audacious statement, right? If you really know me, then you will know God. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Then Philip, who's one of the other disciples, said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even though, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. These are pretty audacious statements, right? I mean, Jesus is saying, you know, I am the way and the truth and the life, and I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me, and I'm speaking his words, and... Um, you know, I, I can do miracles and I'm going to commission you guys to go and, and do some of that stuff too and I'm going to be there to answer your prayers. And, you know, he, he's really claiming to be far more than just a man or just far more than just a religious teacher or a religious leader. Uh, I'm going to look at a couple of verses in going back to John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, this is what it says in verses 16 to 18. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Basically, he is violating their understanding of Sabbath observance. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very hour, to this very day, and I too am working. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, look at verse 18. For this reason, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And I think this is one of the real scandalous things about Jesus. If he had just said, 
you know, I'm a prophet from God and I've got some good teaching for you and uh, listen up because God might want to speak to you. You know, that might be controversial, but that would have been okay. But when he starts to say things like, I am the only way to the Father and I and the Father are one. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Um, man, people are getting mad. They're thinking, how can you, a mere mortal, make these claims to divinity? And uh, sometimes they want to pick up rocks and just stone him to death. Well, when the story begins, I'm going to mostly talk about John chapter 14. The disciples are troubled, right? Because Jesus has announced his departure. Their world is starting to teeter. And in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, Jesus is assuring him about his departure. In fact, he's saying, it's actually a good thing that I'm going to depart because I'm going to be working when I go see the Father and I'm going to be in heaven. He says, I'm going to be working to prepare a place for you. Talking to his followers. He says, I'm going to be preparing a place for you. Remember that? This is one of the verses I memorized in Sunday school. I remember, you know, in my father's house are many mansions. Uh, and if it were not so, I would have told you so, or I wouldn't have told you that, that I'm going. And so basically what he's saying is, I'm going to leave you in this earthly sense. And he would. He would be crucified shortly after. And on the third day, he would be resurrected from the dead. For 40 days, he would make appearances to his disciples his, in his resurrected, glorified body. And then after 40 days of appearances, he would ascend into heaven and they would not see him physically again. But he also told them that I'm going to return and there's going to come a day when Jesus will return and we await that day, even this day. So here's what Jesus says. Well, when I go away, I'm going to be working. I'm going to go there to my father and, and this home has many rooms and I'm going to go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you with me so that you may be where I am. So for these worried, grieving uh, disciples, uh, this is a word of assurance, right? We are going to be together. Maybe our, our presence will you know, temporarily be absent from one another, but he's saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you and we're going to be together forever. And so we will have uninterrupted intimacy and you'll enjoy a relationship with me uh, for all time. And, and knowing that there's a place in heaven reserved for us is one thing. But then they want to know, how do we get there? How do we get there? Because Jesus has said, well, you know, I'm going to come back. And, and then Thomas, who's one of the disciples, he says, Lord, we really don't get it. Uh, we don't know where you're going. And, and how can we know the way? And then that's when Jesus makes, uh, I think, one of his most famous statements of, of all time. Uh, when he says, well, I am the way. Not, not if you follow these rules, you know, that's the way. Or if you go to church X number of times, or if you read the Bible a whole lot, that's the way. Or give a lot of money, that's the way. He says, I am the way. I am the path. I'm the goal, but I'm also the path, right? I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. And he's really pointing people to himself. In this, uh, I think it's not only one of the most famous statements Jesus made, I think it might be perhaps the most controversial thing he ever said. No one comes unto the Father except through me. Now, Jesus is saying, I am the way. And we don't like that. I mean, a lot of us love that because there is a way. And thank God, praise God, that's good news, there is a way. But a lot of people don't like to hear when Jesus says, I am the way. Because we want to think, oh, aren't there many ways? I like to believe there's many ways. And as long as you're sincere, you're going to get there. But Jesus says, well, I am the way, and I am the truth, 
and I am the life. In John chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, it says, the law was given through Moses, which was a good thing, right? But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. Listen to this part. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Good verse, John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. And what it's saying is that Jesus is the, the mediator. You know, there used to be this song, Bridge Over Troubled Water, and then Christians picked up on It's not a Christian song, but Christians picked up on the, what a beautiful image of Jesus. He's the bridge over troubled water. He's the mediator. He's creating this avenue to God. And for those who follow Jesus and come to the Father through him, he is the way. And they gain salvation and eternal life. And, and if they know Jesus, Jesus says, then they will know the Father. If they see Jesus, they're seeing God. So, you know, one of the things that means, and, and this, this is what people don't like to hear this, Jesus, most people would be okay if you said, you know, Jesus was a great moral teacher. Most people say, oh, okay, yeah, he, he was. That, that's cool. And Jesus was a prophet. Okay, well, well, that's good too. But this kind of language, what Jesus is saying here, it, it's, it's like he's saying, I'm not just a religious teacher. I'm not just a religious guide. I, I'm not just the means to a destination. He is the end. He is the goal. We come to him and we come to the Father through him. He is the one in whom God can be found. I and the Father are one, Jesus said. Uh, in fact, there's one time where, where Jesus said that. He said, and, and to Jewish people, he said, I and the Father are one. And they immediately recognized, you know, that's a claim to, to divinity. And so it says, this is John chapter 10. It says, after Jesus said that, I and the Father are one, again his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And here's their answer. We are not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And that's the issue, isn't it? So in my search for God, you know, and if there are many avenues, most people who say there's many avenues and many pathways have not really studied those pathways. In fact, it's kind of an arrogant statement to say all religions are the same, until you've studied all religions, right? I mean, you know, it, it's an easy thing to say, but if you haven't studied them all, how do you, how do you really know that? So going back to John 14, uh, one, one of his other disciples says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said, I love this, Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, and the words I speak, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And he's basically saying that fellowship with himself is the prerequisite for fellowship with the Father. And Jesus is the revealer of God, and in him uh, we find our life. Well, we hear these things and we think, well, if you're a Christian, makes sense. You believed it, and, and hopefully you've experienced something of, of his reality, not only intellectually, but also experientially and emotionally. Uh, other people are saying, oh, I'm not so sure. 
It still sounds awfully arrogant to me. And I've wrestled with this, and this is what, this is what I think now. One is, it's awfully arrogant to say there are many ways to God if you really don't know. I mean, you know, it it's, could be wishful thinking, uh, but how do you know, and what if you're wrong, right? But this is what I realized, too. When Jesus says he's the only way, and hopefully Christians, if we say Jesus is the only way, it's because he said it. It's not because we're being boastful and arrogant. We're just trying to say what Jesus says and teach what Jesus taught. Uh, so if we say that, and I think we should, we ought to do it humbly. This wasn't our idea, right? But, you know, I think we ought to do it joyfully and gratefully, too. You know why? Because, thank God, there is a way. You know what I mean? It's like uh, most of us have had loved ones who have died from cancer, and uh, if, if somebody came up with a, a, a miraculous cure for cancer that always works, and uh, they knew the secret and the formula, and they, you know, maybe they had the patent on it, but now they're going to make it available to people. And, and if they didn't want to, if they said, you know what, this is just kind of a personal thing. It's just, you know, I mean, I discovered it, I kind of want to keep it to myself. What would you think of that person? Uh, I mean, that person would be vilified, right? Because all these people who could be saved are not being saved because the message is not going out. Right? The formula is not being shared. So this is what I realized. When Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, it's not a narrow-minded, bigoted statement. It's like saying, hey, hey, gang, you know, there's a cure. There's a cure for your disease of sin and selfishness, of meaninglessness and despair. And there's a cure, and, and I'm the cure. It's not an arrogant statement if it's true. If it's not true, it's, it's extremely arrogant. Right? But if it is true, that's a loving statement. If you had the cure for cancer, the most loving thing you could do is share it, right? So for Christians to say, you know, Jesus is the way, and we should never do it with arrogance or condemnation or, you know, condescension toward other people and their beliefs. But for Christians to say Jesus is the way is to share what we understand to be God's solution to the human dilemma for the fracturedness and the brokenness of, of, of people from their creator, uh, the reason the world has gone so haywire and so wrong is because it's, this world is not as God intended. This world is broken and fallen and sinful, and God has set in motion a plan to redeem the world and to restore the world and to reconcile people to himself so they could know their creator and begin to walk into the, the purposes that he had for them. One of the best, most loving thing we can do is connect people with God so they can experience God's purposes for their life. That's a wonderful thing. And if there is only one way, then rather than complaining, oh, how come there aren't more ways? That's so narrow-minded of God to only make one way. We ought to say, thanks be to God. There is a way. And that way is free. It's the way of salvation through faith in Jesus. And I told you that uh, when I went through that period of doubt, uh, I was able to resolve some of those doubts through some of the things I learned. And this is one of the things I learned. Everybody's got to make up their mind about Jesus. Right? Everybody's got to make up their mind about Jesus. And many people are willing to say Jesus was a great teacher or a moral leader. He was a great prophet. Uh, he was a religious leader, that he was very profound and said some profound things. But I really don't believe he's the son of God. Here's the problem with that. The very documents that tell us what he said and taught are the very documents that say Jesus said, He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life, that he himself is God 
and the way to the Father is through him. So ultimately, we all, I think, you know, believer and unbeliever, Christian or not, we all should try to figure out, what do you make of Jesus Christ? Because we all have to take a stand here. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or something far worse, right? Somebody put it this way. They said, if you think about it, Jesus was a great moral teacher. Okay, we'll grant that. But he's a great moral teacher who also said, I am God and I am the way to, the, to, to God and, and no one comes to, the, to God the Father except through me. And so it's like, how can he be a great moral teacher if he's lying on this fundamental part of his teaching, right? So is he the Lord or is he a liar? Or maybe Jesus was like one of those just crazy people who think they're Napoleon or Hitler or something, and, and he was just totally delusional, and he thought he was God, but he was nuts, right? Was Jesus a Lord, the Lord himself, or was he a liar, or was he just some kind of lunatic? Now, here's what helped me during my period of doubt. We all have to decide which one was he. And, and a, a rational person will say, well, what's the evidence that he was a liar? And, and does, that, does that uphold in the evidence, or is it just what I want to, what I want to believe because I don't want to believe he was God? Can I make a case that he was a liar? Or what's the evidence that he was a lunatic? Is there any evidence for that? Right? And then thirdly, if, if he's not the Lord, if he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, the only other option is he's the Lord. Here's the way C.S. Lewis put it. C.S. Lewis wrote... I think one of the, the best books about uh, the case for Christian faith is called Mere Christianity. I wish every Christian would read that book, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. I've probably read it about four or five times. Here's one of the best things I read in that book. I am trying, C.S. Lewis writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. They like to say this, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Well, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell, total fraud and liar. You must make your choice. Either, either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You know, if there's one thing I hope that you would take away from this message, well, well, a couple things. One, one is, if you're not convinced or if you have doubts, um, I just want to encourage you to seek and explore. You know, try to learn more, uh, read the Bible, maybe starting with the Gospel of John, uh, maybe explore a good book like this. Don't all religions lead to God? There's a lot of good stuff out there. Talk with one of the pastors or something. Uh, I would just encourage you to explore because Jesus says, you know, uh, those who seek will find, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Uh, I would say there's probably people here that are, that are believers in Jesus, but they don't have a confident faith because they're not sure intellectually. And I would say, you know, if that's your issue, like it was for me, uh, learn more, ask your questions, explore more, read more. Um, the thing that really helped me was C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer and some of those guys. Uh, so I would say that. What I want to say to believers, 
is we should not be arrogant or condescending or condemning to people who embrace other faiths. I do think there is a good, healthy, godly kind of tolerance that we should be respectful to those that we, you know, we disagree with and we should try to get to know them and love them and, and uh, try to understand them and what they believe and why they believe. And, and that might earn us the, the privilege of being able to share what we believe as well. So I think there's a healthy, godly kind of tolerance that we need to have. The other thing I would say to those of you who are believers is stand on the truth. Stand on the truth. We live in this age where it's so politically incorrect to believe in anything firmly, even to believe that there is such a thing as truth and, and right and wrong. And uh, the whole momentum of our culture seems to be headed toward more and more relativism and, a, and an unhealthy kind of tolerance that says anything goes and, and any beliefs are valid. And I think this is the time for God's people to stand up. You know, not in a, not in a mean-spirited, arrogant way, but to say, you know, in a world of darkness and confusion where lives are falling apart and relationships are, are crashing and people don't know what to do and what to believe, that God has come to us and he has revealed himself in his word and especially in his son. And we can know God and we can experience his goodness, his love, his mercy, and we can align ourselves with his purposes. If we could get more connected with God in a way that we experience his purposes for our lives, not only would our lives be better, not only would the church be healthier and stronger, but the world truly would be a better place. Let's pray. Well, take a moment in silence, if you would. Let's just reflect on uh, what we've heard, and maybe you want to ask the Lord. Ask the Lord, what do I need to, to hear from this today, Lord? And what do I need to act upon? Lord, we know that the greater the darkness around us, the greater the darkness, the brighter the light can shine. Shine your light in our hearts, Lord. In homes that are struggling with conflict. Shine your light into our hearts, Lord, when we're tempted to despair or to give up. And Lord, use your people to shine the light of Jesus into a broken, lost world. Help us to do that in a way that's loving and tender and sensitive, but also bold and confident. For you are the way and the truth and the life. And we give you praise. Amen.